morning. You know, I love when we um, declare songs like that, and I'm not sure what the choir sounded like over here or over back there, but up here, you guys were sounding amazing. Okay, I just want you to know, fully engaged, it's always um, uh, just a good reminder for me that when the word says that in our gathering together we're stirred up to faith and good works, um, I promise you that in so many ways in the midst of what happens around our weekend services and the gathering of God's people, man, there is such a, a part of my heart that is just stirred up um, by the f- collective faith of what God's doing in and through our church. And um, we're uh, jumping into a new series um, this morning called Kingdom Culture, uh, Sermon on the Mount, and this is week number one. And so if you found yourself here as a guest, uh, you came at the beginning, um, the end will not come soon, okay? <laughs> it's going to be a while. So um, I've been anticipating this series, honestly, for many months, um, just thinking and reading and processing and praying, and I just, again, am so um, aware of not just the timing of the series for our church, but the timing of the series for the person who stands in front of you. And uh, I don't think I would have preached this a series like I am if, I, if God hadn't been doing the work that he's been doing in my heart and life over the past two years. Uh, we're going to walk um, through this Sermon on the Mount uh, slowly, slowly, because uh, this sermon from Jesus is so desperately needed in our day uh, to establish a kingdom culture more deeply into our lives. Uh, God wants this culture to saturate into your heart and your mind and the way that you live and think and breathe. Um, it's got to, <clears throat> as we walk through this series, there's going to be principles that we're going to reinforce over and over. And just when we think we have it and realize we don't, we'll do it again. And just reinforce these principles over and over again until it's part of the way, by God's grace, that we uh, think and live. Here it is, kingdom culture will run directly against our culture. It'll run directly against our culture. So if you're like, oh, that seems to be countercultural, correct. Um, And it's going to lead you to a distinct culture where set-apart people are truly submitting and delighting under the rule and reign of Christ, of King Jesus. So, so come ready in this series to receive from the Lord and, and come certainly ready to be challenged because I think there's aspects of this that's gonna uh, challenge the way we think about our faith and uh, come ready to be changed. But um, I have been uh, left, even in the first uh, week uh, of this message, just kind of super dependent on God to work and to work through his spirit to achieve any good thing from this message. Uh, So let's pray before we begin. God, I'm um, here to declare uh, my dependence on you in front of these people that I uh, love so dearly and that I find such a great delight in the opportunity that I have to lead and to use my gifts in the way that you've called me to. And I pray that in this series that you would literally rearrange the way that we think and live. I pray we'd be able to see clearly how this runs right at our culture. I pray we'd be ready to do, um, to allow you to do the work that you need to do in our hearts to reframe the way that we think and to create in us 
a culture of the kingdom that we can see and observe and feel and that changes and comes up against some, some just places of great temptation and struggle. And in that, God, I pray you would um, just change us and transform us for your glory. It's in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Okay, question for you. When was, when was the last time that you were still and silent before the Lord for more than 15 minutes? It's a simple question, but be honest to yourself. I'm not going to ask you to put up your hands with the number of days in the last week. In our culture, we tend to struggle with stillness. We do. Silence is incredibly uncomfortable to many. In this week, I was reading an article uh, just in a, a journal, and, and, and this, in this article it said, in America, FOMO, fear of missing out, runs deep. Americans often use external stimuli like devices or social media to distract themselves from personal thoughts or feelings that are uncomfortable. Culturally, we tend to be less adept, less adept at managing boredom through creative pursuits or a meditation practice. This wasn't necessarily a Christian quote. But then this advice from just a psychologist, just a normal, average, everyday person who's serving and trying to help people in counseling, Amy Sullivan wrote this. Again, not a believer, but just get this perspective, even from the world. Learning to sit in stillness and self-reflect is one of the greatest gifts we can give ourselves and our kids. When I read it, I was like, yeah, um, Amy, God's been telling us this for a while. You're kind of late to the game. She says, when we look internally and delve deeper into our value systems and wants and needs, we can communicate at a deeper level. We have to foster that ability. And to that, based on what I want you to see from Scripture, God offers similar wisdom, and I would say amen to that. Psalm 37, be still before the Lord and wait patiently before him. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. See, God knew that we needed um, stillness to commune with him. And, and I, I intro this way because I, I, I don't want to start into the Sermon on the Mount and, and, and like lead you to believe that you can manufacture the reality of a kingdom culture by doing some of the same religious activities in the same religious way that you've been doing them, some of you, for months or years or even decades. It's going to require an undoing of that. And I, I just want to first just challenge you to establish space and time for quiet and stillness. Just start with 15 minutes three to four times a week. Use the journal that we gave you for the kingdom culture. Write down the passage slowly and carefully. And then put everything else away except the journal and a pen. Trust me, I've tried many other ways. Distractions are phenomenally distracting. And, and just, just a journal and a pen and spend that time just writing down your thoughts and observations, maybe a prayer to God. Maybe just allow your heart and your life to be confronted by the word. Sink a little deeper into the words. Listen carefully for what God might be telling you or teaching you or laying on your heart that's in line with God's word. For kingdom culture to saturate your life and thinking, 
you have to process deeply and slowly in times of stillness and quiet. You gotta set aside time to, to find that space and then to ask Jesus to fill that space and you sit before him. So with that as the backdrop, the calling of this, we're gonna see it even in this passage. It's time to learn from Jesus. We're in Matthew 5, verses one through three. First, a little bit of important background information on Matthew. Um, the Gospel of Matthew um, was, was written uh, by Matthew the tax collector um, and it was written particularly and specifically to a Jewish audience. You see it throughout the gospel, distinct from uh, Mark and Luke and John. And um, from the very beginning of, of Matthew, you have, you have uh, the genealogy of Jesus, those genealogies that kind of make our eyes glaze over and we're like, why are they there? All of these people who had children and just all this lineage. Well, the, the reason why it's there is because Matthew's trying to make a connection to a Jewish people. He's like, the life of Jesus came out of this old, this rich Old Testament lineage. And in the first five chapters, in the first four chapters, I mean, you have the account of Jesus' birth, the ministry of John the Baptist, you have the baptism of Jesus, then Jesus' temptation in the desert, the beginning of his ministry, he calls out the first disciples. At this point, Jesus was already, in the previous chapter, going through Galilee, walking into synagogues, into places where people would gather, and he was starting to teach about the kingdom of God. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not coming in some, some, some future millennium. It, it is right now, it's breaking into the world. Which would have been shocking to a Jewish, to the Jewish mind. And his fame was growing quickly and associated with his teaching as an evidence that he is the Son of God was, was healings all over the place. And so the crowds got bigger. And so now in chapter 5, Jesus is going to pull away from the crowds to teach about the culture of the kingdom, his kingdom. And so as we read the passage, I want to remind you, we are, we are reading a historical narrative. Don't read the Sermon on the Mount like it's part of Proverbs. Read it like you're sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to him. Don't read it like an instruction manual. Put yourself in the story. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're invited into it. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The big idea for today from this short passage in Matthew is this. Jesus is encouraging and inviting you to find a flourishing life in Christ and the culture of his kingdom. Find a flourishing life in Christ and the culture of his kingdom. So what do I mean there by the word flourishing? You could think a lot of different things around the idea of flourishing. Flourishing is oftentimes associated with a sense of, um, of gardening or something that's growing and flourishing. And here, what I mean by flourishing life is it is a life that is anchored in the work of Christ. It's a life anchored in the soil of what Christ has already accomplished. It is a life that because of its rootedness into that work of Jesus Christ is receiving the riches and the nutrients and the flourishing of God's kingdom. 
It's a life that's growing and maturing into Christ. Its identity is, is seen and marked by the, the name of Christ and the character of Christ. And, and it's living literally out of the culture. The ground that it's rooted in is the culture of the kingdom that it's drawing up into itself. That's the flourishing life. And it, you, don't, you, don't, you don't get to flourishing cheap and easy. I promise you that. And so, so when you consider that and you see this opportunity for a flourishing life that is throughout this entire Sermon on the Mount, particularly in these, this first section, there's two responses just to this passage, these first three verses, that can help begin to lead us to a flourishing life. Because I want you, each and every person here, I want you to live in the, in the, in the glory and the goodness of the gospel. It is, my, it is my cry and my prayer for each and every person that is a part of this church that we would know it and live in it. And so the first move that we have to make, the first response is this. We have to esteem Christ's authority. Right in this first passage, before we even get to the words of Jesus, I want you to notice a few things. First, Jesus leaves the crowds and he goes up on the mountain. He's making a significant point here in his movement. And Matthew includes this because he knew the significance of Jesus going up on a mountain and he knew the weight that that would have um, given to what Jesus was doing here for the Jewish listener. Because throughout scripture, many of you know this, mountains were places where God revealed himself in significant ways. Some of you who have uh, 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 more knowledgeable of the Old Testament might, might think of people like Elijah, Moses, and many others. Ascension of a mountain was pointing to the arrival of divine revelation. In the Old Testament, it would have it caused them to even think about Moses and Mount Sinai where Moses went up to receive the Ten Commandments. Many suggest um, that Jesus going up the mountain at this point in his ministry about to unfold the Sermon on the Mount, which in some ways, as we're going to see as the series goes, uh, gives a new covenant perspective on the Old Testament law, that, that what Jesus was declaring and going up on the mountain is that he was the new and final Moses. So rich and significant. Like all of Matthew 1 through 5 has been introducing Jesus as the Son of God who has entered the world to rescue people from sin, announcing this kingdom, and, and through his death to form a new creation people. A people called to embody gospel principles by abiding in Christ living out the kingdom culture. And the Sermon on the Mount is the first revelation of this kingdom. So Jesus goes up on the mountain, as we see, and then he, uh, he sits down and his disciples come to him. And Notice, notice they come to listen because after they gather, he opens his mouth and taught them. What, what Jesus is doing and he's establishing here, not just in going up the mountain, but then in sitting, disciples come and gather and he opens his mouth and he teaches them. He is establishing his authority. It's a picture of authority. The disciples are following this teacher. This is an evidence of discipleship. 
disciples aren't up there like, like planning together with Jesus. They're not plotting the future of the church together. They're not working out some church strategy principles and you know, trying to like recruit, to recruit volunteers to serve in the church in the future. Like none of that's being planned. They're not, they're not having a budget discussion or, or anything like that. They're, they're not up there um, to, kind of, uh, to kind of collaborate. The disciples of Jesus esteem his authority. He is seated, they gather, and then he opens his mouth and teaches them. Like, there, there needs to be, as we enter into this Sermon on the Mount, there needs to be a weight that falls on us if we esteem Christ's authority. Because this isn't small talk. This isn't for the entertainment of the disciples. He's not sharing some helpful suggestions for life. He's not hoping that they'd be gathered up and put into a chicken soup for the soul book. He's, he's He's not offering these things as you should or hopefully you will. He's like, feel the weight of these. These are my words. The Son of God speaking them. And he's teaching. The God of the universe sent to the world to rescue and save and establish his set-apart people is sitting down. His mouth is, oh, has opened. And he is instructing and teaching. Everything about this moment follows the prophetic footsteps of the past. There would have been a quietness and a stillness as they listened carefully to every word that came from his mouth. And I want us, as we walk through this, to not see this as pages on the book of a Bible, but to see these as the words that are falling from the very mouth of the Son of God, whom we just worshiped. We gotta esteem Christ's authority. Now, now, now listen, listen, I've heard the stories in our church, many of them. I, I have my own stories of authority abused, I've heard the stories of authorities using their power to manipulate, abuse, and control and unhealthy authorities misrepresenting and misleading people. Many of you have been wounded by authority. And although I may not know your specific story, I want you to know that I hear you and your pain is valid. Your disappointment is understandable. We, we've talked about this often in our church that, that any form of human authority uh, inside and outside the church is flawed and fallen to some degree. And certainly within the context of the church, there is a reality and a need for accountability regarding that. But we have to, at the foot of Jesus, avoid the classic overcorrect where all authority now is rejected or refused. It's an, it's an overprotection that will be at the dismantling of our soul because we will give ourselves to some authority, I promise you, even if the authority is simply just your ability to protect yourself. Instead, we have to bring all authority under the authority of the only authority that can be trusted, and that's Jesus Christ. It's the only person that I can trust with my soul. And the only authority to be trusted is, is any authority in this world that leads you as directly as possible to Jesus. Because Christ is about to share with us his authoritative truth 
to lead you to a flourishing life in Christ. And, it, and your woundedness could be the very thing that keeps you from moving towards that, that healing and beauty that he wants to lead you to, that I want him to lead you to. Don't let yesterday's wounds from authorities cause you to pull away or sit in a defensive or skeptical posture towards King Jesus. Christ's words are an expression of love to you. Right now, in the midst of whatever you're carrying and navigating through, and he wants to heal your wounds and protect your life, don't let any experience cause you to escape from his authority. Instead, esteem his authority. And if you esteem Christ's authority, you'll approach the teaching of Jesus as a disciple. That's who's gathered. The crowds were left behind, but the people who followed him up the mountain to listen to him carefully because they wanted to hear his teaching were his disciples. There's three primary words if you want to understand what a disciple is. It's these three words, listening, learning, and following. Listening, learning, and following. Listening puts you in a posture where you receive the words of Jesus into your mind. Learning is the ability to take what you've received and process it carefully for your life. And following then, when that begins to work its way into your heart, leads to a change of the way you think and live. That's discipleship. And so there's some key questions you can be asking yourself if you want to gauge where you're at as a disciple of Jesus and, and maybe where you need to grow. Here are the questions. What are you hearing from Jesus? What is speaking from his word? What truth is intersecting your life? What are you learning from his word? And how are you following what he is teaching? An active, healthy disciple will have an answer, not necessarily clean and perfectly constructed, but they'll have a sense of what God's doing in them, in their life right now. Because people who walk with Jesus, Jesus opens his mouth. We have a word that we can come before at any point that is the, the working out of his heart for us. If you esteem Christ's authority, what will happen is you will begin to see your life move away from the crowds some who don't even know or even aren't even aware of the reality of the glory and goodness of Jesus. Some who are but aren't really following him. But disciples will separate themselves over time from the crowds and move to a place above all the noise, above all the clamoring and confusion to just sit down before King Jesus with a heart to listen, to learn, and to follow. And what you begin to understand is an essential character of a kingdom culture is that people who, whose lives are saturated by this culture, they know without question, they come back to again and again and again this truth, that being with Christ comes before doing anything for Christ. Come as a disciple come out of the crowd to be a disciple of Christ by faith if you have not yet done that. <clears throat> Esteem Christ's authority to find a flourishing life in Christ and in the culture of his kingdom. That's the first thing we see from this passage. The second one is this. Embrace the invitation to flourish in Christ's kingdom. This is um, 
such a captivating and wonderful invitation, and God wants us to embrace it. He wants us to embrace the invitation. If you notice in your Bible, uh, right before, many of you will probably be right before verse 2, there's a, a header. The header isn't, isn't um, from the original manuscripts. It's not, it's not ordained or perfect or infallible, but they're just section headings to help us as the uh, uh, readers of Scripture. And, and what does it say in your Bible? What does it say? Let me hear somebody. The Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. And uh, that's almost across the um, different versions of the Bible. I've seen it again and again. The Beatitudes, referring to the verses starting in verse 3 all the way through verse 11. Actually, it ends in verse 12. And Beatitudes simply mean this. It means blessed are. It's a summary of the two words that are at the front of all of those verses. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And what, what, what Jesus is doing here at the intro, which isn't like a throwaway intro to get to the real substance, is a critical foundational part. He is um, uh, giving you an overview of the characteristics of this kingdom culture. But there's a problem that we have to address from the very beginning because as I studied this, um, one of the things that's difficult at different times, not often, um, but sometimes there is a nuance or a distinct understanding of a word when translated into English that sometimes English just doesn't do the word justice. It just doesn't. And we've highlighted that at different times in past messages and blessed is a confusing word because it, it, we have to understand this original word because this word blessed is used literally in every, in every verse in these coming weeks. We're going to see it again and again. The original word is makarios. And uh, so let me just bring some kind of needed clarity to this to make sure we're all on the same page. What, what Jesus is not saying is that... Is that um, He's not proclaiming that there is some sense of divine favor or blessing that, will, that comes simply from right actions here. He's not, he's not articulating in these, in these beatitudes. He's not uh, communicating that if you just do the right actions, then blessing will come. There's not this sort of like one-to-one that like, if I can just get the right action, I'm going to find favor from God. He's not saying that. What he is inviting you to is a, is a wisdom of, of this culture that to find what God is wanting to lead you to requires that this wisdom marks your life and in addition, he's based on the fact that he's already beginning to uh, roll out this kingdom that's at, at hand, he's also, in these words, inviting you into a kingdom culture that through Christ and his message is breaking into the world. So it's both captivating and it also requires an enduring wisdom, a walking in a direction consistently. You could say it like this, the traits that Jesus outlines cannot be achieved through any human work, but are worked into us by his grace 
through the work of the Spirit in the process of discipleship. It's right there. And the process of discipleship, as we already outlined, is listening, learning, and following. And it's this, it's this work of wisdom that Jesus is laying before his people. If you walk through these Beatitudes and you try to find, uh, what's the action I'm supposed to do? You're going to be left frustrated. So some of you who have articulated your faith simply by this religious idea of rights and wrongs are going to find the Beatitudes infuriating. And I'm so happy. Because I hope it just riles you up to a place where you're like, what in the world am I supposed to do with this? And we're going to see that pretty clearly. This idea of blessed communicates two ideas. One is that Jesus is giving a vision for life rooted in God's restorative kingdom. He wants it to break into your life. And different than today's view of happiness, which would also be a really uh, a bad misunderstanding of this word blessed, that I mean, I just hope I get blessed so I can just be happy. Today's view of happiness is cheap. Anybody figure that out yet? Hands up, right? There's a lot of amens to that. Because today's view of happiness communicates it's like this temp, very temporary state of mind. But when, but when it's talking about this, this blessed life that God wants to invite us into, this flourishing life, he's talking about an entire life that is satisfied and meaningful. It endures through whatever circumstances might come. Jonathan Pennington, in a a book that served me so well in my study of the Sermon on the Mount, wrote this. He said, It was only through the lifelong intentional pursuit of virtue, which is practiced moral character, that one could find true flourishing. It's not cheap, and it's not easy. And it will demand everything that you have. But you will find with that offering of everything that you have a life that is flourishing. I think actually as uh, Jonathan Pennington suggests that, that we would be uh, a probably more accurate to replace blessed with flourishing. Because flourishing doesn't come, this idea of flourishing doesn't come through just a series of like, man, I, I just kind of rocked it today and I was just, I was really obedient today and just, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. That's, that's so small in light of what God wants to bring through his gospel work in your life. So, so in addition to that, um, the suggestion that flourishing would probably represent better the idea of this passage. The other thing that I would, I would encourage you to do is where it says beatitude, I would replace that and put as a reminder to you in parentheses in your Bible uh, the word B-E, attitude. Because flourishing is only found by the person who knows what it means regularly in their life to be with Christ. Simply and purely and powerfully. Flourishing only comes by being with Christ. So in each one of these, God's inviting us first to a be attitude. Pennington nails it again. He says, true flourishing can be found only in the context of the fear of the Lord. Note that in the beginning of Proverbs, many of you know this, that in the beginning of Proverbs, as as Solomon is articulating this whole vision for wisdom, what he says at the beginning is the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so, so look what he says. He says, only in the context of the fear of the Lord and a covenantal relationship with the one and only creator, God. 
as I thought through all of this, here's what I wrote down. It's on the screens. True kingdom flourishing is found by living with kingdom anticipation first. There's this sense and draw to the fact that through Jesus, the, the kingdom of God is wanting to break into this dark world. And, and through the words of scripture, particularly the words of Jesus, uh, that, that kingdom can actually become part of my culture, my life. And walking in the wisdom of the king in the presence of the king. All of this comes together and it is not just a beautiful anticipation, but it can be a beautiful reality for those whose faith is in Jesus Christ. And so, let's bring all of that background now, all of that important information now to the first verse, chapter five, verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So first, let me just um, make a note here that uh, poor here is not financial, okay? So some of you are like, man, I for sure came in this morning poor. Like if you see my bank account, you know I am I am dialed in on Matthew five three. It's sorry, it's not financial. Poor is a picture of spiritual need. Watch this. It's a it's it's a picture of spiritual need that manifests itself in a dependence on God. You see this in the Psalms all the time. Psalm thirty four six. This poor man cried. This wasn't like a testimony of his like four hundred one k. Okay. He didn't go through a few bad years and they were like the poor man cried out because the economy was bad. This poor man cried because he needed God and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Or Psalm 75. But I, this personal declaration, I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Do not delay John Stott, in his a book on the Sermon on the Mount, wrote it so beautifully. He said, to be poor in spirit is therefore to acknowledge our spiritual poverty, indeed our spiritual bankruptcy before God. That is the condition that produces humility, church. It's the condition that produces humility. I've been around some people who have walked through financial bankruptcy and there's a sense in financial bankruptcy that comes where the person is literally going, I have to start again from absolute zero. It can be tragic for sure. It can also be incredibly freeing to start again, hopefully with wisdom and so the beginning of what Jesus says in this sermon is, is that you are poor in spirit. It, 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 that's a correct perception of your own soul. Poor in spirit, yes, but through the gospel, rich only in Christ. It's true for everyone. It doesn't matter how long you've walked with Jesus Christ, like you're poor in spirit. In your flesh, you are spiritually bankrupt. See, see, before we're filled with the kingdom of heaven, we have to recognize our emptiness. No one comes to God to fill up what they believe is already filled. So if you're walking around like, I got this life nailed. Like, I am so amazing. 
That person doesn't come to God with any sense of desperation, does not come with any characteristic of being a disciple. They can't. They're full of themselves. And, and, so, and so there's this first emptying, there's this first being poured out. Start with a true assessment of your spiritual poverty if you want to understand the kingdom culture. Because what will happen then is that there will be a longing and a dependence on God's grace, His favor. There'll be a sense that you cannot do any of this on your own, any belief that you manifest any sense of faithfulness to this wisdom that Jesus is unfolding would be a violation of poor in spirit. This has to be your attitude, and, and when it becomes your attitude, I, I, I promise you that so many places it's going to conflict right with what the culture wants to speak. Both in our culture, in the psychological community, in so many layers of our culture, they're just trying to establish the, the rightness of your spirit, the goodness of your spirit, and Jesus comes into that, and he begins to unfold in the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. He says, Flourishing are those who are poor in spirit. See, th this idea is, is foreign to the world, but it's native and it's normal to those who have received the kingdom of heaven. Because they know that spiritual poverty must be the mark of their lives because when we, I operate with a spiritual poverty sense, I am now desperate for God. I... The, 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 question, the question that ran around in my head all week was like, how do I lead people to this poor in spirit? How? Like, I, I, I don't have an answer. And I think in not having an answer, that's the answer. I can't make this happen in your life. No leader can make emptying yourself a reality. No one gets to touch the cup of your heart except for you. No one. No matter what control you've given over to someone, you hold the cup of your soul and whatever you filled it with for the kingdom of heaven to be put in, you have to empty it and see yourself as poor in spirit. It only comes honestly with a be attitude. The only way you understand even the nature of your life as poor in spirit is by living a life where being with God in the habits of grace, where walking before his word and going um, and seeing the revelation of Jesus in his word, by, by working through life uh, with Jesus in prayer, by aligning your life before him. Because it's only when you're with Jesus that you're able to get a vision of, of, of his riches in his word and his power that cause you to go, I've got nothing to bring. I am completely bankrupt only when I am with Jesus. When I am understanding his presence and his right and his authority over my life. When you experience the alarm and urgency of your spiritual poverty, your, your complete and total emptiness, debt, and need before God, then and only then will you be ready to receive the kingdom of heaven. And when you come like that before God, he will flood your life with his goodness. So don't ask for something to do at this point. Ask God 
for a Holy Spirit revelation of how poor in spirit you really are. And if it, if it creates a sense of brokenness, let it come. That's the spirit work. If there comes a place and you're just like, I, I, I can't pour that out, let him come and pour it out as you see how good he is. Ask for a fresh revelation of the glory and goodness of, and the richness of Jesus. Ask for a be attitude. Embrace the invitation to flourish in Christ's kingdom. Esteem Christ. Embrace the invitation to flourish in Christ's kingdom. Find a flourishing life in Christ and the culture of his kingdom. This is what Christ is going to be leading us to again and again through different avenues and different aspects of the culture of the kingdom. But he's going to leave us week after week desperate for the only thing that will lead us to what he's outlining and showing us. Each and every week, God is going to challenge us and he's going to say to us, let me add another brick to the wall of the kingdom culture in your life. Draw near to me and I will, by my grace, add another brick to the wall of your life. And within the walls of this kingdom culture that's intended to guide and protect us, within that, God wants to plant your life down deep within the protection of this kingdom culture so that he might lead you to have a life that is flourishing. That was the heart of Jesus then. It's the heart of Jesus now. I was, I was honestly tr- tremendously nervous even about the, the pace that we were going to go through uh, these Beatitudes until this week. I know it's right because inherent in the words that Jesus used was an invitation to a Beatitude. Towards Jesus, towards the gospel, towards his mission. And so the band is going to come and they're going to sing a song over us as we close today. And we're not going to, um, I'm not going to invite everyone to stand. One of the most consistent moments of being with Jesus has come when the simple words of a worship song are simply sung over me. And what, what that has done to my soul is given me a sense of who God is sort of being spoken over my life and into that uh, uh, regularly there are moves just to, just to worship God and get a sense of how poor my spirit is because of how awesome and full Jesus' spirit is. And so I want to invite you as the band sings this song, if the spirit of God is drawing you forward to pray in any way as a response to this message, I want to invite you to come up front and just, just kneel and pray and seek the Lord and, and maybe move from the crowd to a place where you could just come and kneel and lay your heart out before God. And maybe you just need to pour your heart out to him. Maybe you need to be like, God, I, I, I don't even know what it means to be poor in spirit. Would you, would you let me see it more clearly and more deeply? Maybe some of you, it's just like, I want to put my faith in you, God. I don't even know what it means. But I believe you are who you say you are. The front of the worship center is open. Take this time to simply be with Jesus as this song is sung over us. Feel free to sing along if you want as God works in your heart. Let his spirit move 
in your heart and do the thing that only he can do in response to this passage. Let's be with Jesus. Let's let that form a be attitude that would draw us near to him so that we could be poor in spirit and through that receive fully the kingdom of heaven. Let's do that now as the band sings.